0: According to the Shipibo and my own experiences, plant spirits aren't necessarily intrinsically good. They have both a light and a dark side, and that they can be used for both. So the Shipibo consider them to be neutral spirits. So, can ayahuasca be used to gain power? Yes. Can it be used as a tool of capitalism? Maybe. Does ayahuasca like humans? Not necessarily. And I think that's why it's important
1: to treat the medicines with a lot of respect. Welcome to Voice of Vesselin. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Laura Dev, a postdoctoral scholar in public political ecology, whose work investigates the relations and practices surrounding ayahuasca, a psychoactive plant mixture, focusing on the pathways by which plants, rituals, and knowledge associated with the use of ayahuasca travel between Shipibo communities in the rural Peruvian Amazon and the global north. We chat about global ayahuasca tourism, changing native landscapes, socially responsible use, and receiving wisdom and sometimes even writing advice from plants. So Laura, for your dissertation research, you're using a multi-species ethnography approach to investigate conditions surrounding ayahuasca. The challenges and opportunities indigenous communities are faced with regarding the commodification of their plants and rituals. I would love to hear more about your research regarding this connection between the cultures of the rural Peruvian Amazon and California.
0: Sure. So yeah, for my dissertation, and now um, the dissertation is going to be turning into a book that I'm writing now, I'm... Looking at the commodification of ayahuasca, um, I did my field work over five years in Shipibo in communities in the Peruvian Amazon. And in these communities, ayahuasca tourism has become an important industry. In particular, I was interested in understanding, for one, how the plants themselves were participating in these processes, um, and also how relationships between plants and people are changing as a result of the commodification of ayahuasca. And then secondly, I was also interested in seeing how Shipibo relationships with outsiders were changing and whether or not this global ayahuasca phenomenon should be simply seen as an extension of the other extractive industries that have passed through the Amazon since the early colonization of the Americas, or whether it's somehow different.
1: Oh my gosh, well that's super interesting. Would you mind walking me through a little bit of that, kind of unpacking the, the notions that you've set forth? I'd love to hear about first uh, the plants themselves, and kind of was hoping that you could, you could start by couching this discussion in an explanation of what ayahuasca is, where, where this comes from, what it consists of.
0: Sure, so ayahuasca is typically a mixture of two plants, a vine, Banisteriopsis capi, and a shrub, Chacruna, which is Psychotria viridis that come from the Amazon, and they're used traditionally by many different indigenous peoples of the Amazon, and they're cooked together. The two plants are cooked together into a really concentrated liquid solution. There's other plants that are sometimes added, or like in Colombia, there's some there's a different mixture, yahe, which is a different plant instead of chacruna, but... Um, the the chemistry of the two plants work together to produce the psychoactive and psychedelic effects that include visions, synesthesia, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and other kind of intense things for the body to experience, but also potent healing. So for, um, for the indigenous groups that use it, some use them for different purposes. Some use it more communally. They can use it to promote success in hunting or for spiritual purposes. But the Shipibo, who I studied with, use it more in a healing context. So the ceremonies are led by a healer, and then the patients traditionally actually don't drink ayahuasca along with the healer. The healer sings Icaros to them, which are healing songs, and the patients then receive the Igaros, which which are responsible for the healing. And then the Shipibo also use it for dieting teacher plants. So for the Shipibo plants and trees are teachers and healers. So in order to learn from a certain tree, for example, they have to prepare the body in a certain way by abstaining from certain foods and activities. And then ayahuasca can be taken to help facilitate the connection between the tree and that person. And that's the process that healers use to learn how to heal, they learn it directly from the plants that are teaching them.
1: Very interesting. Yeah, so you you kind of started off your your explanation of your dissertation research by speaking about the the plants' participation in this, and and I was just one. I would love to hear a little bit more of the elaboration, like the plant perspective.
0: Yeah, so it's a little bit of a blend of like my perspective on how the plants are participating because the plants. We can see these as plant spirits that are in these deep relationships with healers and other people who are dieting plants are influencing these practices. And a lot of the rules around taking ayahuasca are the practices themselves and the ikaros are learned directly from these plant spirits. The, the plant spirits and the healers and the patient all kind of co-constitute this healing process. And there's ways in which the plant's influence people outside of the healing context through like their economic relations and so part of what i'm also looking at is how these plants influence the shape of their own economies through the relationships that they have with people which is a little bit complicated but but yeah it's really interesting to think about for example why has ayahuasca's economy developed the way it has or like why has it not taken the same trajectory as other psychedelic medicines even like if you look at the difference between the ayahuasca economy and the psilocybin economy, that you see like a very different um, structure as to how these medicines or or substances or plants are spreading throughout the world. Or if you compare ayahuasca to coca, which coca is also grown in the Amazon, you know it comes from the Andes, but now it's grown a lot in the Amazon. But it's it travels through a completely different economic network than ayahuasca does and ayahuasca for the most part has traveled along with its ceremonies so it's so taken ceremonially even when it's taken in the north in the global north by thinking about like the chemical expressions of the plants as chemicals are how these plants communicate not the only way that they communicate but it's one of the ways that they communicate with each other or with other beings so what is it about these different um, expressions of the plant that have shaped these economies in different ways.
1: Right, well you bring up a really interesting point when I think about the economy that's based around ayahuasca versus the economy that has sort of sprouted up regarding let's say psilocybin. They are really different and it seems that if I had to guess, I'm kind of more of an amateur, but if I had to guess the economy that's built around ayahuasca is one more about uh, ceremony and the economy built up around psilocybin is more around, and when I say ceremony, I mean group ceremony, and the economy based on psilocybin seems more like it's getting synthesized and used within the psychotherapeutic framework often. Would you mind speaking a a bit about that?
0: Yeah, so you do see ayahuasca being primarily in ceremony, as we talked about, and I think, you know, there's different reasons for that. Like, I don't want to say that it's like a deterministic thing that, like it had to happen this way, but there's a lot of, I think, reasons why it does happen this way. And one of the reasons I think is because the effects of the plants are so strong on the body that it kind of hasn't become very popular for use as like a street drug or as like a party. So um, that's not to say that some people don't do that. Like I think that like maybe, like I know people who you know bought the ingredients off the internet when they were in college and like made their own batches and tried it, but they didn't usually like continue to try it after that um, it, it, outside of an exper- a ceremonial context. And so, so I think partly that, and also partly because of the, the way that it's become popular globally or like the media attention that it's gotten has been through these ceremonies that are often indigenous but there's also a lot of other different types of ceremonies that that have spread throughout the world and also like new types that are continuing to to arise around the use of the plant so I think that makes it really different when we think about economies because it's not just the plant materials that are passing hands but also these like ceremonial expertise and you have that requires a lot of logistics to transport also part of it is like the it's not very easy to mass produce the vines require trees to climb they grow in specific habitats it's not that easy to domesticate the vines or to like plant them in a monoculture whereas psilocybin you can grow in your bedroom if you want to so there's like there's all of these kind of different aspects as to like the ecology of the plants the relationship it has with bodies and then also its cultural context and cultural relationships that have grown around it that affect these
1: economies and how they're working. Right. Yes. Yes. And culture. That kind of leads me to my my next question. I want to ask you why you think ayahuasca has become so attractive to a certain sect of Westerners in recent years in opposition to other times like the 1960s, when in America, at least, LSD was clearly the fan favorite. And now ayahuasca has achieved a certain popularization. So I I, I would ask you to speculate around that.
0: Sure. Yeah. And, you know, it is just speculation, but I think a lot has to do with what is accessible to people. So some people like William S. Burroughs in the 60s were traveling to Peru to take ayahuasca, but for the most part, people didn't know that much about it or have access to it back then. Um, So, and now there's this whole tourism industry in South America around facilitating experiences for foreigners. And then the ceremonies have also become common in other places all around the world, which are oftentimes led by people who have maybe studied in South America with a teacher that they're accessible like in the global north in a lot of cities and then people are able to travel a lot so I think a lot has to do with globalization but also it also has to do with the media around it that there's been a lot of media attention in recent decades around ayahuasca so it's now even become part of mainstream awareness in a lot of places so yeah, I think it has to do with this like curiosity around this experience that has become kind of a a buzzword or a phenomenon, and also with globalization. Yes,
1: yeah, so there's a sort of exoticness about the experience, and even the the difficulty in obtaining it, it can lead to a kind of interest or a kind of desire to be included in this. When I think about criticisms that are lev- leveled against the liberal left or the liberal elites, it's that there's this this hunger for appropriation of other cultures that will lead to a sort of feeling of like intrinsic nativization for themselves, something that they can attain by eating a plant or uh, participating in uh, briefly in another type of culture, not obviously not participating to a point that it will cause them significant distress or will upset their privilege, but dipping their toe in for uh, a night or two or a week or two within the per- Peruvian Amazon is something that they can, that they can afford. So yeah, I'd I, I love to hear you talk a little bit more about global ayahuasca tourism, when it started, how it works, and what are some of the effects of it?
0: Sure, yeah, yeah, great questions. Um, so as I mentioned, so the tourism is a phenomenon where people from all over the world are traveling mostly to South America to participate in ayahuasca ceremonies which has been interrupted by COVID, of course. But prior to COVID, (laughs) there was this kind of growing wave of of tourism probably since uh, over the last couple decades, especially. I'm not sure exactly when it started increasing, but I think it's been steadily increasing over the last few decades. And ayahuasca centers have popped up in many places in the Amazon, like Iquitos especially. Um, in Peru, at least, and then there's other places in Brazil and Ecuador and Colombia. But these centers are often run by foreigners, not all the time. There's also some that are run by locals and then some that are run by indigenous healers. Those are often in their own communities that they're able to grow their own businesses. And that creates this other interesting phenomenon where you have these very small, rural, indigenous communities, and you have like a steady stream of outsider tourists coming into these communities. And that has all sorts of different types of effects in the communities.
1: Well, yeah, I'd love to hear about some of the effects, both positive and negative, that are generated within these cultures. I mean, I assume that's some of the focus of your of your research is to to get into the the specific positives and the specific negatives which i imagine are are somewhat somewhat significant
0: yeah so so most of the indigenous communities of the amazon and worldwide are poor by their country's standards and they experience structural and overt racism within their countries and lack of and they they lack access to good jobs income from tourism can be really important for people's livelihoods. And it sometimes provides alternatives to industries like logging for which um, which for a certain period of time might have been the only jobs available to people in the Amazon. There's also um, so much lack in many of these communities that the amount of money from the tourism is only enough to really cover people's subsistence but not enough to generate real capital. So there's a, a thing where tourists come in and, and maybe pay for ayahuasca ceremonies, but then that only really like provides enough income for those specific families for maybe a certain a number of months during the year. Because it's also there are certain months during the year where it's not very hospitable, like during the rainy season. There's not a high tourism industry. Yeah, it's hard for people to get ahead. It's hard for people to actually form businesses that are generating like actual real sustainable benefits, even for the families that are benefiting. Furthermore, since only some of the families are benefiting, it can also create more inequality and disparity within the communities to have income coming into just certain families. But in the best instances, the presence of outsiders can be positive for the whole community, like when they're really engaging in the struggles of the community through things like helping supply clean water for the community through like a water filtration system that they set up or um, helping to supply the local health posts with medicines or like other kind of community projects that are things that like maybe the whole community needs and is asking for and that these foreigners are sometimes able to pull together their resources to make these things happen and so I think that's one of the really positive things that can come out of it although arguably like should that be should that be how it's happening? Like, should the Peruvian government be supplying like more resources for the communities? Like that's a whole other issue, but I think it can, it can be a really a positive thing for these communities. But then, and, and then also the Enxapibo communities, a lot of income is gained through selling artesania, which is the em- embroidery work that's done by the women. And they're basically reliant on tourists to buy the artesania which is important because it often is like, is the only source of income for families that don't have other means. The downside is that when they're reliant on tourists for, for even these like basic level income that when, when it's the off season or when something like COVID happens and like this income goes away, that people's livelihoods suffer immensely. And it's not really this, it's not really a sustainable solution for the
1: communities? Very tricky and very complex. I uh, I have a Shapipo vest that I got at a festival. You could say that the festival represented the, I don't know, anthropological group that I belonged to or belonged to at the time, which is sort of like mm-hmm. the, you know, liberal weirdo, hippie, new age, burning man, whatever. It was like symbiosis, I think, or Something like that, and bought the Chapipo vest jacket for one hundred and eighty five dollars, obviously not from somebody from Peru. It had been made by somebody from Peru, but a, a member of somebody from my class or anthropological subset had gone there and bought it for i don 't know thirty dollars or something, and then up upsold it to me for the for the difference it 's just kind of it 's super interesting the way that these these things work, and it kind of brings me back to the way that you introduced your research with the question around does this type of engagement replicate uh, a kind of extractive actions around the the, the Amazon as well?
0: well? First of all, to say, like, it, it's interesting about the embroidery work and the artisania that it, it travels so far around the world, it travels like this. Um, you know, there's some behind me here, but the that the designs are almost, have become recognizable, at least in a certain subset of people who are who recognize these designs and that they're traveling like way further than most Shipibo people, people ever travel, which many people never even go to Lima or travel within Peru. So um, the designs have become really mobile and, and kind of a representative of the culture. And, you know, it's great for people to be buying these embroidery works from people. As I said, it's a very important source of their income, but often it's kind of, it's like, it's not enough. And then if, if the people are then making a profit on it without kind of returning that flow back to the people who brought it from, is it, is it really different from something like extracting rubber from the Amazon and with like this exploited indigenous labor system that it relied on?
1: Yeah, well, one thing that's interesting to me is that the psychedelic experience is kind of underscored by this feeling of unity and oneness and equality amongst all peoples. A lot of people experience that while doing ayahuasca or taking LSD or whatnot. Not everyone. But oftentimes when we scratch the surface a little bit, and this has kind of been the focus of this, this series that, um, that we're creating at Esalen, is that there continue to be uh, inequalities that sort of put that proposition uh, to the test. Right and I, I'm curious too, like what do you think socially responsible use in the West at least could look like for for ayahuasca like I don't know what what are some ways that psychedelic enthusiasts could make this herb work for the forest people?
0: Yeah, it's another great question, and I think it's really important to be asking these questions. I don't think that there's one answer that applies to everyone, but for me. It comes down to forming relationships, creating relationships with the people and the plants and the places that the plants come from and really listening to what the struggles of the communities are and then uh, aligning ourselves with those struggles and being able to use the resources and privilege available to us to fight for those struggles alongside and under the leadership of the communities, which means not just going in and deciding that you know what's best for another community, but being able to see what's already going on, what fights are being fought, and to try to help with that, with those struggles. So that, those are, you know, something that people who are really spending a lot of time in those communities can do. For some people who are more removed from those places, I think a good place to start is just really trying to understand where the medicines come from, where the, where the traditions come from, and thinking about, what is like how, how healing can be not just an individual process, but is something that has to reach across these interpersonal, intercultural, interspecies, even lines and has to be something that we, we start thinking about, not just as like a entitlement to healing that flows from the Amazon to people in the global North or to like people of privilege, but something that is where we're like deeply inquiring how can we be in reciprocity with these places and how can we start using these connections that these plants open up to like shuffle resources and healing and benefits to the communities that it comes from and to the ecosystems as well so I mean for some people that could also just look like maybe a good place to start is to be donating to organizations who are already working in good ways to benefit those communities. But yeah, when thinking about the distribution of the of healing resources that are being directed toward outsiders, at the minimum, I think we need to be thinking about how can we ensure that indigenous communities have access to clean water, to health care, how can they benefit from their own ancestral healing practices, that it's not just outsiders who are learning those practices and receiving healing, but helping to ensure that they're being practiced and passed on within the local communities as well, and making sure that the plants are being, that the plants are still around, that they're not being extractively harvested from the local ecosystems and that they're also being learned about by young people there. Yeah, like the COVID crisis really highlighted a lot of the health inequalities in the communities. The effects of the virus continue to be really devastating for many indigenous communities in the Amazon. And that's for like a whole host of structural reasons. But yeah, I think the plants can teach us a lot about reciprocity and show us new ways of being if we ask them about it. But I, I think it's equally important to be listening and working with the people, um, with these indigenous communities and following their lead in these efforts.
1: Your background is in, you, you mentioned plants, your, your background is in plant ecology. Would you say that this kind of international interest in plant medicine is changing native landscapes?
0: It's not changing landscapes as much as things like logging and oil palm plantations are in the Amazon, which are some of the major drivers of deforestation, at least in the areas that I work. But the demand, especially for the cappy vines, is making them harder to find in the forest. And that's working alongside these other drivers of deforestation, because if there were more acreage of forest, then there would be more habitat for the vines. But yeah, we are seeing that the demand for the vines is making them harder to find. So like in the areas around Iquitos, it's really hard to find ayahuasca, like it's being depleted there. And so it's like moving further and further away, like into the forest to find it. And then the ones that are being harvested are being harvested at younger and younger ages. So it's, that, that's just a sign that demand for the vines is overtaking the supply. And it's a little different than it, than for Chakruna, the other plant, because that plant can be cultivated and and grown, and people are growing it. But it's also st- starting to be a higher demand than supply.
1: Is ayahuasca use popular in South America amongst the non-native folks?
0: Um. Yeah, I think it can be. It depends. It's. It's often treated with a lot more fear and respect than I think it is sometimes among foreigners. So even if, even in Pucallpa, I worked in in Pucallpa or outside of Pucallpa and like generally everybody there knows what ayahuasca is, knows about it, maybe they've experienced it. A lot of people don't drink it personally, but a lot of people have or do. I would say more common because as I mentioned earlier, the kind of traditional way to take it would be that the healer actually drinks ayahuasca and then sings Icaros to somebody who is in need of healing. So it is fairly common for even non-Indigenous people in Peru or in that area to seek out a healer. Like it could be for even something like bad luck or relationship troubles, or maybe it's for an illness or something, but they might go to to see a Shipibo healer and sit in a ceremony but not necessarily drink ayahuasca.
1: You know, coca became a huge issue politically within Bolivia years ago with Evo Morales, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. I want to ask you if there's any sort of discernible political impact on the South American cultures that are playing host to ayahuasca ceremonies.
0: Yeah, it's a great question and it's tricky. And I would say that yes, there is, but I'm not, I I think it still remains to be seen like what the outcome of that is going to be. And in a couple ways, because right now, for example, ayahuasca use is protected as a um, cultural patrimony in Peru, basically as like a cultural heritage. But there has been talk by some people who are afraid that, because there have been some instances of, um, of like deaths associated with the incorrect use of ayahuasca. And so people are afraid that if pe- if there's not some sort of um, regulation on how ayahuasca is being consumed and like safe practices and ensuring that people are experienced practitioners and that sort of thing, that there could be some backlash or like that it could end up Affecting people's ability to continue to consume it legally in the future, and then like another side of that question is that I, I do see that even in Shipibo politics, there's an increasing tendency for outsiders to get involved in Shipibo politics for better or worse. So yeah, I don't think I don't think that we know exactly what, how it's going to play out, but I do see that it is influencing politics.
1: <laughs> What's it like to be? You, what's it like to be someone who's research academically oriented amongst the sort of neo shamanic ayahuasca subculture that's sprouted up in the United States and beyond?
0: Um, well, I think it's really fascinating. I mean, my interest in these topics is what led me to study these things, so it's a culture that I'm very familiar and comfortable with. But being a researcher also means that. My relationship in these spaces is always a little different for me. For example, as part of my work, I see dieting plants and participating in ayahuasca ceremonies as sort of my way of interviewing the plants. So that means that when I'm participating in ayahuasca ceremonies, it's not just about my personal healing. Like it's also about, I'm also like observing the entire kind of ethnographic experience, but I'm also many times asking my plant teachers for help with my work. Um, When I was writing my dissertation, I would ask my plant teachers for guidance on my writing um, and things like that. And it also means that when I'm in the community, even though I might be doing diets and ceremonies along with the ayahuasca tourists, that sometimes I'm also waking up early to do interviews with people in the community or have meetings with various committees that I'm working with. So I think it just kind of means I play a bunch of different roles. And overall, I think it's really interesting work and I've made a lot of very, very interesting and beautiful friends through doing it, so.
1: Does writing feedback from your plant teachers sound like, or what what kind of form would it take?
0: Like, I think the first time I asked them for help, it was like, I was about to give some presentation on my research that I, yeah, I'd never talked about my research before in like an academic setting. And so I was in ceremony and I was asking my plan teachers, like, please help me. Like, what should I say in this presentation? And then they were like, tell them that you asked us. (laughs) Tell them that you asked us for advice. And so, so I was like, okay, okay. So then I did. I told that in the presentation. And so I try to take their advice, but then sometimes it's things that are harder to take. So, or some things that maybe make sense at the time when I'm, under the influence of ayahuasca and then afterwards i'm like i don't know but also like it it also looks like there have been diets that i've done where i've been working and kind of asking advice of the plants to help me with my research and they just keep giving me ideas or like i just will come out of the ceremonies with like pages and pages of ideas of things like basically like a to-do list of things that i have to do that have just like come to me during the night and so i I'll end up like not sleeping very much and just like writing writing down all of these things and adding them to my list. And it's it's really interesting to see how like the different connections of my work have grown out of those lists that I've made during those times.
1: I think just the idea of kind of interspecies or intergenus communication between humans and plants is absolutely fascinating again, your background is in plant ecology and you have a kind of a, this deep connection you're dedicating your life and your work towards the plants and mentioning that you kind of take more than your personal healing in a ceremony into account. You take the question of how how the plants are doing into account. It's obvious to me that like our society is deeply lacking this ability to, to speak and to consider anything outside of, the Homo sapiens, right? If we had more connection, more listening to plants and trees, for example, then I don't think it would be possible to engage in such extractive uh, methodologies like in the the Amazon. I don't know. I'm kind of looking for your thoughts around how it works that we can communicate with Mm. with plants.
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's I don't know exactly how it works. I, I, For me, I think it's, it's. I'm hesitant or like I think it's dangerous to actually reduce it to like a chemical reaction. So I don't want to say the answer that's like, oh, well, the DMT interacts with your brain molecules and causes you to have visions or something. Because I think that that's not really, I think that there's a lot more to that and that part of the mystery or part of the exciting aspects of working with these plants is that we don't really know how it works and that like for me I feel like I've had to do a lot of unlearning and just like part of my plant education has just been learning how to learn from plants or like learning how to communicate with plants because it's something that I didn't grow up with and that's pretty foreign to my mind and so I feel like I'm just just a beginner in that world and just kind of like getting a taste of it here and there and like finding those places of connection. And it feels really gratifying and, and satisfying and special. So I think that a lot of us are kind of hungry for that type of spiritual connection and that it does provide us with, with that if that's what we're looking for.
1: Love to hear your take on the future of this plant on this, this brew, every good psychedelic cheerleader I'm one to be sure of has somewhat evangelical nature to them and in, in other words we believe whether it's stated clearly or whether it's sort of subtextual that various alkaloids may be our last best hope to change ourselves perhaps save the planet what say you what, what is ayahuasca poised and positioned to do with our cooperation
0: good question <laughs> yeah can ayahuasca change the world's Sure. Yeah, I think it's changing the world. I think it's helped a lot of people heal. And I think that the impacts are real. But I also tend to treat these types of claims cautiously, because for a few reasons. For one, I think that ayahuasca might not be good for everyone, that it can have serious risks and shouldn't be taken lightly. So I don't I'm not one of the people that just says, oh, you have a problem, take ayahuasca. And then secondly, that according to the Shipibo and and my own experiences, that plants aren't necessarily, or like plant spirits aren't necessarily intrinsically good, that they have both the light and the dark side and that they can be used for both. So the Shipibo consider them to be neutral spirits. So can ayahuasca be used to gain power? Yes. Can it be used as a tool of capitalism? Maybe. Does ayahuasca like humans? Not necessarily. And I think that's why it's important to treat the medicines with a lot of respect. Part of the like guidelines of taking these plants is because you're trying to like win, win over the plants so that they will help you. But if you don't respect the plants, they can actually like harm you and, wreak havoc. And on the, on the other side, if you come to them with intentions to do harm, like that's how shamanic warfare works in the Amazon is that they use the powers of plants to cause harm to other people. So that's why it's also important to always be clear with our intentions. And so it goes back to the idea of, um, extending healing beyond the individual, because I think it's like, how, like what, what world are we trying to change if we just want ayahuasca to kind of bestow healing on the global north and on tourists who have the ability to pay for these experiences with, with these ancestral practices from indigenous peoples that are maybe being underpaid. Is that the change that we want to see in the world? Or And like how, what would it take to make those relationships more reciprocal? going in with with like very clear intentions and clear clear ideas about the changes we want to see is important at the same time like believing that there's things to be learned from the plants that we don't just go in with our own intentions and like ideas about how we want things to change but that we're really receptive and humble to like receiving the wisdom and the healing from the plants and being willing to act on it and like listen to the guidance that they give. So, yeah, I feel like I just, I just have a lot of caution about saying that it's always a good thing or that like, like a lot of people say, Oh, ayahuasca wants to come out into the world and, and heal people. And I don't, I'm not saying that that's not true, but I'm also recognizing that, that's how capitalism works. Like capitalism is an extractive machine that like takes, takes plants and energies out of places and brings it to other places. And so, and capitalism is so powerful. So are we going to say that this is ayahuasca's desire to, to come out of the world when maybe it's just like a capitalist process that's happening, or is it maybe that there's both happening and that, you know, maybe ayahuasca is able to use, a capitalist process to reach a greater audience of people like that could be something to say but i just um yeah i just don't know
1: <laughs> there's a lot that we don't know there's a lot of lot of mystery surrounding the future of this plant and the future of our interaction with with all plants and with with our our habitat this is just off the top of my head but i can only imagine what it must feel like for you who has spent significant time within the Amazon, within the rainforest, to see the rate at which it's being destroyed and the effects that it will have on these people who you know in in a deep way and the plant that you're listening to in a a literal way. Yeah, it's just hard to fathom. But Laurie Dev, before I, I let you go, you mentioned at some point in your interview that one way to engage in a kind of a responsible way with these plants is to possibly contribute to some of the organizations that are doing good, either in the Amazon or around ayahuasca in particular. I was just wondering if you had a couple of those that you might want to reference.
0: You know, the organization that I collaborated with and worked with when I was down in Peru is called Alianza Arcana. They are doing really great work for Shipibo communities um, in the Amazon and it's, a, it's now a Shipibo-led organization. So that's the one that comes to mind. And then there's a lot of other great organizations, but um, yeah, I would encourage people to look at small organizations that are led by local community members and to especially Indigenous led organizations that are important to support, maybe under-resourced.
1: Laura, Dev, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk with us today. Thanks so much for this awesome, enlightening educational discussion.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been really nice to talk with you about it.
1: Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Peter Kobabe, Terry Gilby, and Michelle McCrary. Our music is by Nico Holloman. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contribution.